Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Thank you for coming this afternoon. And as I said yesterday, uh, with all due respect to my colleagues, I have the best job in the house this weekend because I am uh, happy to welcome the Third Coast Festival Scholars. I'm going to <laughs> um, we had a, we had a nice uh, a nice meet gathering yesterday and uh, what's going to happen is first of all I, I've been asked um, to ask you to make sure that your cell phones are off please or uh, uh, yes so we can't hear them and what the way it's going to work is I'm going to introduce each of the scholars then they're going to talk a little bit about themselves individually. They'll play their feature. Uh, in uh, at least one case, it's a little long, so we're going to fade out. And after they play their feature, if they want to follow up with something, they can. But at that, after they finish their indiv uh, playing their individual feature, they're uh, open for questions. Okay. They have 12 minutes each because we have a lot to go through. At the end, if we have time, we will take questions for the entire group. So I would like to start to my left, and they switched the little so I'm going to make sure I <laughs> make sure I say the right word. <laughs> it's Diego Ruiz, who's from Out Loud Radio in San Francisco. Uh, to his right is Michelle Cedeno with Spy Hot Productions, Loud and Clear from Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, to her right is Will Wright from the University of Minnesota. To his right is Hamad Ahmed, and Hamad has been and is an intern at WNYC in New York and WBUR in Boston. And to his right is Jordan Tekle, who's with Radio Rookies. Hey, hey, hey! Diego! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay, so. Not Without a competition. Uh, wasting any more of my words, please, Diego. Hey guys, I'm Diego Ruiz. I'm from San Francisco. I lived there for 18 and some odd years, and now for the last month and a half, I've been living in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I attend McAllister College. I'm a first year student. So I work for Out Loud Radio. It's a radio pro it's a youth radio program and it's centered around queer and allied youth so lesbian gay bisexual transgender queer everything else and then allies too i encourage you to go to our website and listen to the pieces of the other people from my um internship session they're all awesome um and my piece is about riot girl music and sort of my connection to it and throughout the piece, I also interviewed a couple people who were actually involved in the Riot Girl movement. It's a sort of feminist punk movement from the early 90s, from the Pacific Northwest mostly. And I, as a like teenager in the 2000s, kind of this connection with it, or had. And I guess I'll just let you guys listen to the piece at this point and hear it. So yeah. My connection with Riot Girl began when I was 15. It was the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of high school. I was figuring out I was gay, and I didn't really know what to do. I was pretty socially isolated the entire summer. Another boring day at home, rummaging through my parents' CD collection, I found Dig Me Out by Slater Kinney and heard what would be my first Riot Girl influence song. 
So, what is Riot Girl? Riot Girl was a feminist punk movement in the early 90s centered in Olympia and Washington, D.C. My name is Sarah Marcus, and I'm writing a history of Riot Girl. I attended weekly meetings at a, um, a punk activist collective house in Northern Virginia every week for about my last year of high school. If you were in a band, it felt like a music scene. If you were someone who was really into political organizing, it felt like a political movement. If you were in a town where the Riot Girl chapter was a group of five friends getting together to talk about your lives, then that's what it felt like to you. I liked Riot Girl at first because simply it's good rock music. I'd like the general ethics of other punk bands, but was turned off by the macho nature of the typical guy bands. It wasn't really something I could connect to. Punk with female voices and women playing the instruments was something totally new. We're Bikini Kill, and we want revolution! Girls The more I learned about Riot Girl, the more I was intrigued. Suddenly, I was totally obsessed. I bought as many albums and learned as much as I could. Then, I even did an independent study at school. Riot Girl fell into my life at the perfect time. Hearing there were others who felt vulnerable, different, and pissed off was exactly what I needed. The people involved with Riot Girl were really different from me, but I related with them because they too were not the norm. My name is Cookie Woolner, and from 1992 to 1995, I wrote a fanzine called Girl Fiend and was very involved in the Riot Girl movement. Riot Girl for me was really the first time I felt part of a community and that I felt like people really wanted to hear what, what I had to say. I mean, maybe only like 500 people had ever read my zine or knew who I was, but sometimes I'd go to shows and meet somebody and they knew who I was already. And it just felt so great. It just felt like it was this way to have like this tiny, tiny, tiny little speck of like stardom or fame on like the most obscure subcultural level, but it still, you know, it still made you feel like you were somebody in the world. And I think it gave a lot of disenfranchised young people that feeling that they were connected to something. I think a lot of women are really kind of working out their issues around men through Riot Girl, and some people really felt strongly about it being a women-only space. And then there's other people who didn't necessarily feel that and and wanted to talk more about the ways that men have been oppressed as well. So it was really, you know, it really varied, depending on who you ask about that aspect of Riot Girl. The media cast many Riot Girl bands as being reactionary man-haters, but I didn't see them that way. The head of Kill Rockstars, one of the main record labels of Riot Girl, the guitarist of Bikini Kill, the lead singer of Hungy Bear, were all male. Although Riot Girl was mainly about women doing things for themselves, Men also organized to discuss what they could do about sexism in the punk community. Even though Riot Girl focused a lot on gender issues, many of the themes and zines and song lyrics are applicable to everyone. Here's an excerpt from Jigsaw Youth, one of my favorite Riot Girl writings. Jigsaw Youth. I don't know what this means to anyone. Only what it means to me. Standing proud and saying, I don't know who I am. I want to know more. I am not afraid to say things matter to me. Jigsaw Youth by Kathleen Hanna, Jigsaw Z number 4, 1991. Hearing someone say that it was okay to still be in the process of figuring out who you are, 
That was a message I wasn't getting from anywhere else. And accepting that I didn't know who I was was the first step to figuring it out. Mizian was kind of this place to understand kind of my gender identity and kind of figure out what my gender identity was outside of what the media taught me. Now I'm 18, I'm way less angry, and large part thanks to Riot Girl, have a way better grip on my identity. It's funny, I don't even listen to Riot Girl much anymore, but the message still influences me. Maybe the most inspirational thing I take from Riot Girl was how it came about, as put by Sarah. We were just like you, we were just teenagers who were pissed off and confused, and it just so happened that we were getting and giving one another messages at the right time. You know, there was nothing special about us except that we were all the most special people in the world exactly like anyone else's. And that everything we did mattered intensely, just like everything that anyone does matters intensely if they decide that it does. I hope that message from Riot Girl endures, and I hope I can pass it on to other pissed off teens. Everything we do matters. Our actions really will cause profound change. Seeing how the actions of a bunch of angry youth helped me so much gives me faith that the message is true. For Out Loud Radio, I'm Diego Ruiz. So that was the first radio piece I've ever made, still the only one I've totally made, and I still, I actually, I just took it to Chrissy Clark, she was my audio doctor earlier today, and now I want to edit it. So, yeah. So, um, any questions? Why do you want to edit it? Um, there's some issues with story structure, I find, and I want to make sure to make it accessible to people who've never heard of Riot Girl before, I'm not sure it is that way now. Um, I'd appreciate if any of you had feedback on that, especially. Um, but yeah, I think that, and there's just some, like, I don't know. I'm not easily contented with stuff. I always feel like it could be better. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Questions, comments, please? Um, there was a zine writer that said, uh, that she felt like she had a tiny little bit of fame on a subcultural level. How do you, we were talking about this earlier, how do you feel about this festival? and people hearing about Out Loud and wanting to hear your stories. I hadn't made that connection, but that's totally it. It's weird that people have come up to me and been like, I heard your piece, it was awesome. And I just find that completely mind-boggling. That like people listen to us, I hadn't really thought of that before. <laughs> um. Any more questions, comments? Uh, I was wondering, like, I'm into zines myself, and, like, how did you find, I've heard of Riot Girl but I've never, like, seen any, because they're so old from, like, the 90s. How'd you find them? Like, I actually, I didn't. Like, 15 years old. Like, the oldest zine I found is, like, from two, like, 1999. Okay, this kind of shows the extent of my obsession of Riot Girl, but for the independent study at school I briefly mentioned, I actually, I went to the library and they have this really old collection of zines, and I just went and I like looked at all the titles and anything that might have been a feminist zine from the early 90s, I looked back. And you have to like ask a librarian specifically to pull them out for you, and they, the librarian they asked really didn't like me. But that was <laughs> where I found some of the stuff from the early 90s that I used for my paper. I didn't really 
use much of it in this piece, but that's just kind of how into it I was and the research I was doing. It ended up being like a 10-page paper. It was insane. Yeah. There's zine printing presses that you can get like back catalogs from. Yeah, I've heard More questions, comments? I just thought it was perfectly accessible. I didn't think, I didn't feel like I needed any more explanation. So just, you asked for comments. Oh, so. okay. Awesome. That's good to hear. <laughs> I, I could be an anomaly. Yeah, I think that we all, you know, or most people have, oh, I'm sorry. Most people have, you know, a musical artist or an actor, somebody that you really, be, you know, very, very close to. And then at a certain point, they're not exactly it anymore so when did you come how did you come did that was that just one day you woke up or did it peter out or what can you explain what happened when they weren't as you know big an influence on your life as they were you know the day before i think it was gradual because i sort of became not a pissed off teen anymore and at that point like and so there was that really deep resonance when i was like a large loner for my first couple years of high school and then I'm not really anymore. And so it sort of lost that. I mean, still, when I listen to it now, um, I still remember. And it still means a ton to me, like I said at the end of the piece. I think it's a really profound thing about how you can create social change simply by deciding something matters to you and that you yourself matter. But it's not, I don't know. It's not really as profound. It's not what I'm feeling now anymore. I remember what that feeling was like. That's in large part what this piece is about. But yeah, that's kind of, I just, I guess I became more well-adjusted. <laughs> yeah? Since I've been at the conference, I'm really interested in how people deal with telling personal stories. And what I really like about this piece is that it talks about you but it also educates about Riot Girl. I think that's a really nice mix, you know, that you're talking Thanks. about a pop culture phenomena, but through your own lens. I, yeah, I thought it was really well done. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm really happy to hear that, too. Yeah, I don't know that I would want to edit. I didn't hear anything that I would have wanted to touch on. I thought your, your delivery was really authentic and the, the way that you go into the actuality seems to fit, the structure is organic. Um, I mean, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that at this conference, that might be the strongest piece I've heard that I've been here this weekend. Whoa. That to me is radio documentary, you know? Um, 18 years old, lady and, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I guess, should I wrap it up, or, um, or how about, much time? Yeah, about one minute or two. OK. Um, any other comments? And thanks so much, too. Do you want? OK. Yeah. Um, just one quick thing to wrap it up. I'm making my second piece now. It's about my school, I'm McAllister, the college I go to in St. Paul. Um, it's gay friendliness. It got ranked number one in the Princeton Review when I'm as a gay-friendly school the year I was applying. And I'm trying to analyze what that means and what makes an institution gay-friendly and all the different angles of that. So I've been doing interviews for that. I think it's going to be a really exciting piece. So yeah, that's all. Thanks so much, guys.
Next is and, Michelle. Oh, oh. And feel free to come talk to me afterward, please. <laughs> <laughs> Next is Michelle Cedeno. Um, yes, my name is Michelle Cedeno, and I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm with the Spy Hop Production uh, Loud and Clear program. And the piece that's going to be played today is called Childhood Friends. And it was written, produced, and uh, like uh, edited all by me. And it is my first piece. So, like, there is like now that I hear it, I still like cringe at certain points I wish I would have like known about. But um, I, uh, I, yeah. So, and it's about uh, me and my cousin and just uh, the different paths and lifestyles uh, we have and what we live today. So, I hope you enjoy. My name is Michelle Cedeno, and this is my radio essay, Childhood Friends. Once upon a time, there was Cherie and Michelle. They dreamed of what they would become. They were inseparable. There was at times hateful words, but with time we only had love for each other, living on the same block, apartment, and when in hard times, the same room. Since her mother, my aunt, my mom's sister, had a problem of staying on her feet, we would always have them close by us to help her. My aunt's economic struggles led her to remarry and move away with Sherry, which instead only divided both family. My playmate, the one who cheered with me on New Year's Eve, holding champagne glasses full of apple cider, hoping for blessings and promises that when we are grown, we will keep the tradition of being together, at least for the holidays, no matter what hand life deals us. However, now that the holidays pass, I only see that our child promises were just childish. Time was a thief that separated and left us living different lives. It seemed as if yesterday I blinked, and now I'm a senior graduating from high school. I, Michelle, am 17, with ambitions of going to college. On the other hand, my Cherie, my childhood cousin, that was my partner in crime, is 17 with a baby on the way, living in her boyfriend's house. Before that, the state gave her mother, my aunt, back her rights to her daughter and took her out of foster care, where she had been in and out of checking to rehab. The first time she was in was because she was found unconscious and later went into a coma due to overdosing on methamphetamine. She's no longer the same little girl I knew. She's not the same Cherie I knew, and she says I'm not the same Michelle. We both were always competitive, but with others. Now her conversations are either her trying to shock me by telling me what she had gone through or comparing herself with me, usually two times better. I want to know why she thinks she can't be herself around me, trying to be better at humiliating herself to me, her own friend, closer to me than my sister Sherry had been. Life's too short to waste my time striving for a piece of paper in the end. I want to help her, but the closer I am, the more I remind her of what she could have or should have been. But on other days, she says that I am her hero, trying to make something of myself. But the truth is, she inspires me, since I know that if I had lived her life, I would have been in the same situation as well, and maybe not even have as much confidence or even be here today. I lived with a mother who has pampered me, pushing me every morning to wake up, and then drove in to and from school. I had lunch made for me right after school, for I wouldn't be distracted by hunger when I did my homework. I never had to go a day not knowing if there was going to be food or not, not having my father besides me like she had it. Her father left her when she was seven years old, enough time in her life so that she knew what she would be missing. I know that I must be grateful for my blessings of a father, a mother, pushing for me to succeed, living here in Utah to give me a better life, where Sherry had her mother, who took one day at a time. As tears run down my face, I long for yesterday. Why did she have to go? I think that at times, if I would have stayed close and in touch with her, that maybe she would have known that people did care about her, that at least that I cared about her. She didn't need to hurt herself with her habits, but the further she was, the further I was told to stay away from her. My parents assumed that I would only be influenced by her actions, even though my grandmother says she doesn't want her to give birth to another bastard. I know that the history of women in my family of giving birth to bastards wasn't her fault. 
to my mother, to her mother, to her, and now to her baby. It's a cycle. She may be misunderstood by others, but not by me. I'm not speaking for everyone, but for Sherry by explaining that was not a black and white issue of just making a choice, but her trying to escape her problems at home, at school, and with herself. And please know not everyone deals with the same struggles and can simply choose the right. I can't tell this to her, or to my mom, or anyone close to me. It's not passing judgment, but rather bringing up realities that no one wants to be reminded of. That's why I talk to you. Thank you. Questions, comments, please? Nice writing. You say you hear things now that you would want to edit fix or what would they be? Um, I actually, I don't like how emotional it is. I feel like it says a little no. bit too much information. Like, oh, like, why am I saying this all out loud? Like, uh, I just, mm, well, I don't know. That's what's well, that's what, makes <laughs> it, that's, what, that's what makes it rich. That's, that's important. That's I wondered if you, I wondered if you, um, I, I like the pace of it because it's, it's almost like all the thoughts coming into your head to me. But I wonder if there's not a place in there where it needs to breathe a little bit. You know, it needs a second for the listener to just allow them, the listener, to reflect a moment rather than keep taking in all that information. Right. And um, I actually, a uh, local radio station, uh, KUER, um, asked me if I could come record in their studio. And I actually had to do, like, an exercise of, like, talking slower and, like, actually have a slower pace. So I totally understand what you're saying. But, uh, I, and this is someone that you talk slower. It's that it, it just needs, I think there might be a point where it needs to just breathe, let the music just play for a few seconds to let the listener take in what he's hearing. Because it, it moves so, but, but, but I like the movement because it's like all these thoughts coming into your head. It, yeah, it yeah. moves like poetry, but even poetry has stanzas that yeah, you can. Yeah, there are moments so you can yeah, breathe. Yeah, sure. yeah definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, you said you, you, did, you weren't edited by anyone else. I, I mean, I'm just curious as to the writing process and you, know, you were able to sort of go so deep and it, it holds together and it has an arc. and. Wondering if you did it kind of in one swoop, or if you, you know, um, it was a long time coming together. Or... Um, it was actually like one swoop. I was avoiding even writing a radio documentary for the program. I was, I kind of didn't want to like say anything at all. And then one night, I was like free without homework, so I just sat down and wrote all my thoughts out, and just kind of like came free flowing. Everything just kind of came out. Yeah. And the next day, I like read it in front of my class. And that was the first time I had read it out loud to anyone, or like even I had even like reread it. It just seemed like a lot of people like started crying in the room. And this is a really like emotional day. I was like, oh, gosh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. kind of on those lines as well. Somewhere in there, you said, you know, that you have, couldn't tell this to your cousin and you couldn't tell it to your mom, but that you're able to tell it to a microphone or to a room like this. It's, I mean, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. You know, sort of the power of radio or sharing a story, but how hard it is to talk with, you know, even the people who are really close to you sometimes. Yeah, that's that's what I enjoy most about, like, this process that, like, um, like she she hasn't even heard it, or, like, or neither my father, like, close people in my life. Um, it just seems like talking about it out loud with, like, friends and, like, family who actually know the situation it brings up so many memories and so many stuff. It just, like, it becomes, like, like too emotional for people to even talk about with, that I'm close with. So I don't, I don't want to bring that confrontation, like, especially in, like, like moments, like, wh why do I even need to, like, speak about this right now? It never seems like a perfect time to talk about it, but something that should be issued within, like, my family and, like, close friends. But, yeah, it's, it's easier to talk to, like, 
people I've, I never even see, rather than like close family members. But questions, comments? Is more is is more of your writing that personal? Um, actually, I I haven't written for a long time. It was just like I used to when I was in junior high, and then I just stopped altogether. So, yeah, I think this is like the only piece of writing writing I still have, if anything. What, what else have you produced, Ben? Um, this is my only radio essay. Um, I haven't worked on anything since. Um, I, I do some, uh, also like documentaries and like some film programs with uh, Loud and Clear, but that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes? Uh, the music. So you chose the music, right? Um, yeah, it's showcased by Amina. Um, actually, I was looking for music that would work well and my uh, mentor, uh, Liz Coleman, she was like, I got a song right here. <laughs> she just, uh, yeah, so she let me borrow that. It, it, the music ended just as you were, your essay ended. Was that a coincidence, or did you edit it to make that happen? Um, my editing skills are not that good. <laughs> but I, I think it just happened. Like, I laid down the song, and then I put, like, the audio on top, and it just kind of fell in nicely. Um, what is the track? Do you know who the artist is? Um, the artist is Amina, and I don't know the title of the song. Is it an instrumental, or did you take the... Uh, it's uh, just all instrumental. It's the entire song. There's no lyrics to it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Are you tempted in any way to play this for your cousin? Um, well, right now she just had her baby, and she's happy, and it, like, it really is like a blessing for her and everything. And so... I think like all these memories, like maybe like later when she's a little bit more stable and everything's going good, um, but not right now. <laughs> so you haven't chosen anybody that like close. Uh, just like my mom's the only person. Yeah. <coughs> what did your mom think? Um, she started crying, so I was like nobody else. <laughs> uh, next is Will Wright. Good afternoon. I'm a senior at the University of Minnesota. I've as a fifth year senior, still have <laughs> two years left before I finally <laughs> graduate. Um, but uh, okay, the the story that you're going to hear is uh, comes somewhat on the tail of my having interned at National Public Radio last fall. It's the gosh, uh, the third the, the third story that I filed after having fi uh, done so for intern edition. And basically, there is a high school in St. Paul, Minnesota, called Gordon Parks High School. It's an alternative learning center, and they had uh, they had their official dedication in March. And I decided, okay, I'm gonna go and do some sort of story on this. And my biggest uh, concern was how to how to not gather material that that I could only uh, put together in a conventional way. So I found an interesting character who had an amazing story, and I uh, figured, okay, that's going to be it. So, let's go. Where grows the learning tree? By rivers that flow in the night. On Thursday, March 6th, the St. Paul Public Schools officially dedicated its alternative learning center, Gordon Parks High School, for its namesake, an iconic African-American Renaissance artist. You might remember Parks as the photojournalist, the filmmaker, the author, or the musical composer. 
He was all of these, and more. This dedication came almost two years after Gordon Parks passed away on March 7, 2006. Many people remember him for having directed the 1971 film Shaft. A different generation remembers his first film from two years earlier, The Learning Tree. It was based on his coming-of-age novel of the same name. That made him the first African-American to direct a Hollywood film. Its melodic and soaring theme bookends this story. St. Paul's mayor, Chris Coleman, said a few words. What a beautiful occasion for which we gather to open up a brand new school in the city of St. Paul. The school conducted a writing contest for best original writing piece by a student. The winner is Charlie Vu, who will now recite her poem. I am. I am a bird with broken wings. I am a baby turtle racing for the ocean. I am a single teen parent. I am a struggling high school student. I am the life of my daughter. I am Charlie Vu. I'm in the 12th grade here. I'm not born here, actually. I'm born in Thailand in a refugee camp. Paul Krieger is an English teacher. My job, I'm the white teacher. These students are interesting. Their parents have been murdered. You know, I can, I can remove one obstacle, the English credit. But Parks High senior Cha Lee Vu is why we're here. How are you doing academically at uh, your other school versus how you're doing now? Well, at my other schools, my main issue is probably the attendance. I heard that, you know, you do get your credits done and, you know, it's easier because I was behind credits and this is the fastest way, you know, in the shortest amount of time to get the most credits that I've known. And then coming here knowing that I get, you know, to miss at least one day out of the week and it'll be fine just gives me a little more... Yeah, give me a little bit more flexibility. According to a May 2005 report by the Citizens League Study Committee on High School to Higher Education, there is a significant achievement gap in St. Paul. There, in 2002, more than half of Asian American students completed high school in four years, while nearly three-quarters of Caucasian students and less than 40% of African American students did so. English teacher Paul Krieger. These students have amazing stories to tell. Like Cha. I am a victim of abuse. I am the eyes for my mother. I am the cane for my father. I am the oldest of seven children. I can say I've cried after reading her poems and after hearing about her life. What do you think of those people who think that, oh, at-risk kids, they're, they're just low-lives? You know, you're the only one that could change what they say about you, so just change what they say about you. Do it yourself. I want to go to the Metropolitan and get my four-year RN there. Everyone here at Gordon Park High School, all the staff, they're really supportive, and I think of my daughter's future. Like, if I don't have a good future, then she's not going to have one. She She's a blessing for real because, you know, I could picture myself if I didn't have another one, too keep me in check, then I would not be where I am now. She really is. She makes me, you know, if I screw up my future, it's going to affect hers. So it really just keeps me on top of things. I am a teacher to my siblings. I am the bonding of my friends. I am courage. We're creating a memory for them. You tap into that whole legacy. 
and I think these students are always going to have this building be their learning tree. The learning tree. This is Will Wright for KFAI Radio News. It's been a while since I've heard that. Um, a long while. Uh, wow. Um, I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> uh, any questions? <laughs> any comments? How, how did you run into her? I mean, you say you went there not looking for her. Yeah. You didn't, probably didn't know about her, right? No. So how did that happen? Um, well, I had, uh, see how, how concisely I can give you the history. Um, before I went there to cover the, the dedication, I was contacted by Paul Krieger to uh, come to, the, to his class and talk to the kids about uh, public radio storytelling and uh, the fact that it doesn't have to be so dang white. And uh, she, was in the, she was in the room, and I had brought a deck to uh, give a show and tell about how to you know, do a basic radio thing. And it turned out that she had made this interesting poem, and I, I asked her if she would record it for me. Um, and so when I, when I came back to cover the, the event, I knew that I wanted to talk to her. I didn't know whether that poem or her story would make it in there because I didn't know the details of her story. But the other, uh, the other two students to whom I spoke were uh, more polished than, than that I wanted to have to deal with. I mean, they, they had their talking points, and their histories were not particularly interesting to me. Um, they were, I suppose, conventional. Uh, they hadn't had a whole lot of holy crap kind of moments in their lives. And Cha had, and I liked her voice. She had the she had the poem, that uh, I guess still affects me. Um, and so I just went with it and found a way to make a story that had some artistry and wasn't too conventional for me. No, I think it's a in a way a good lesson that you know the story that you think you're going to get isn't always the story that is the one you want. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else, huh? Yes. I'll ask a question about that poem. It sounded like you started the poem with her public recitation of it, and then you went to her your table did, is that right? Mm -hmm. And then you went to her talking. I thought that was really effective. Oh, yeah, thank you. I like that a lot. Thank you. That's great. Great mix. Thank you. I've heard that's the second. Actually, I think I've heard three of your features, and the the, the one about the bridge, mm -hmm. both are very emotional. I mean, they they have you know they can put a lot of baggage on your back. So how do you, you know, because obviously you 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 still feel very close to this and to the young woman. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, as my voice cracks for the first time in twenty years, um, I. I purposefully didn't listen to this story before I came here. I, I hadn't, I hadn't listened to it since maybe April, and I didn't want to. I wanted stuff to be like new and fresh to my ears again, um, and I, I had just forgotten some of the nuances and the, the power of uh, 
a first story. Um, I'm not sure how I deal with it, I guess. I, I, when it comes to whatever work I do, I've just trained myself over the years to seek out and make stories that evoke feeling. Um, and it's one reason why I'm not sure how great I would be when it comes to just filing uh, spot news, because, um, I, So it's just, I don't know that I can articulate the process. I, I suppose part of it is put, putting, putting my ears on, the ears that I, I guess, developed at, at NPR, to isolate the, the, the clips that I think really give the, the nuggets of something that could become a story. And then I start putting that together in Pro Tools, and I'm like, there's a story. OK, so how do I put that together so it makes sense? OK. And you know, step by step, I, I, I find you know, ways to, to evoke feeling, ways to hopefully bring you into the, into the, the character's or the source's story. Um, that's probably the best explanation I can give. I just wonder because um, both yours and Michelle's are so emotionally rich, but they're in a difference. Uh, you know, Michelle, you said that you just wrote yours, and that was it. Was there an editing process? Did you, uh, Will? Did you work with someone to who sat down and said? No. Um, it's actually one of the. It's one of the, my irritations. Before I wind up pee popping. Um, I mean, I've. For better or worse, I've, I've gotten used to having to be my own darn editor. I'm not good enough. Um, it if I'm going to be my own editor, I need a lot of time uh, to be able to you know, come back a few days later and think, well, you thought that was going to be good, huh? Or that level sucks. Uh, and r really to be able to, to tighten and smarten things up. Um, when I get back home, hopefully I'll find somebody who is as nutty for public radio storytelling as I am who can be a, a hard-ass producer and editor. I mean, I am my own hard ass, but I, I, I mean, I, I have my own irritatingly high standard, but I, I need somebody else to be worse than I am, I guess. So, so, uh, so I want to ask the producers in the audience to react to that because they're saying they didn't, ha they they didn't have editors. I mean, would this, you know? <clears throat> How, well, it's, how often oh, does this happen? It's not okay. like I, I don't have an editor. Uh, my advisor was there to help me all throughout it. Um, I just, okay. Yeah. And I, I still think like some of the writing needs to be editing and stuff. I just never took the time. But, okay. yeah. Thanks, Beverly. Um, it's... it's um, I'm feeling conflicted about how many people are out there right now because it's great that you're all taking an interest in us and it's um, a, the piece that I'm going to show you is something that I did a long time ago for myself and I never thought I would be listening to it with people and seeing their faces and um, it, it involves a former roommate of mine who came from India very recently before I met him and when he told me he was an untouchable in India I couldn't really believe it because I'd never met an untouchable. In America, you don't, f you don't often meet people who were that low in the caste system. So um, over the course of a couple of months, I got to know him better. And we were living in New Haven, Connecticut, which a lot of people have a sense of as being a very rough and um, they will just say a ghetto place. And I thought that was a very unfair and stereotypical judgment. But then um, something happened to Selvaraj, which made me really struggle with my own thoughts about race and 
um, violence. Tao? What is an it doesn't. The piece starts out by him talking, and I'll only play the last five minutes. The first five minutes is Salvaraj explaining that when he was a kid in India and he walked into a woman's house, she screamed at him and told him to get out, and then she wiped the entire house with a sponge because his caste is considered dirty, dirty, and so anytime he touches anything that belongs to her, it's considered defiled. So the first five minutes was his experience in India, and the piece starts. Yeah, you can go. The piece starts at the music bed in the intermission. Well, 24 years later, in 2007, Salvaraj was no longer in Chennai or in India at all. He got a job in New Haven, Connecticut, in a place where. Forget his cast. People couldn't even figure out his name. He had a well-paying job. He was doing what he liked. Things were good. But then, what he had escaped in India finally caught up with him in the United States. The violence, that is. And the unfairness. One Saturday night in New Haven, Selvaraj went out to a bar. And I had a, a couple of beer. Then it was a late night. Uh, uh, I was I was riding my bike, you know. Um, three or four uh, Afro-American kids, uh, they stopped me, and they suddenly one guy started to beat me. It's happening on the street, and uh, there are a bunch of folks who are cheering them. You know, they are supporting them to hit me. One guy uh, uh, asked me to give give my bike. Then I gave the bike. I already asked for money. I didn't give the money. Then they, um, they really hated me more than four or five times, and uh, my nose started to bleed, you know. Uh, then I, I walked a couple of states, then I called uh, to 9-11. I remember seeing Selvarad the night he was mugged. He was shaking and had plugged a wad of tissue up his bloody nostril. Red droplets glinted on his shirt and shoes. He realized he had been easy prey. People can see me and tell, you know, this guy is not an American. He's an Indian. And uh, he may not be having much support. Or what do you, you know what I'm saying that. That same night, a police officer lined up four suspects and asked Salvaraj to identify which of them attacked him. He was 70% sure he saw the guy. Then I said uh, to the, the, the officer, uh, see, uh, I wasn't 100% sure that... Uh, uh, he is the guy who hit me, so I don't want to screw the guy's life uh, when I'm not uh, 100% sure, actually. So they were all released, even though he was pretty sure that was the culprit. I asked him why he let them go. Those kids are definitely not criminals. They do not know what they're doing. Despite his anger and his injuries and his lost property, he saw the kids as humans, people he could relate to. In fact, he even asked the police officer to put him in touch with the suspects so that he could talk to them. It's like, you know, uh, if cop goes and talks to the suspect, uh, that would be different. And if a victim goes and talks to the suspect, that is different. Maybe I, I could talk to the people and, you know, like uh, the kids, uh, they thought it was fun, but uh, in the, eventually it, is, it, it was a crime, actually. For the third year, 40 bucks, and they are risking their life. I don't know whether these people know this or not. 
he never did get to talk to them. The cop said he couldn't give out their information, which is too bad. He wanted to show those kids that what they thought was fun crossed a line into something much worse. And who better to say that than someone who knew all about crossing lines? Someone like Selvaraj, who learned as a five-year-old untouchable, he was not supposed to cross the line into a Brahmin's house, and who laughed it off. Who better to draw the line than someone who's walked on both sides? But of course, the kids that targeted him didn't realize all this about him. Nor do most people who can't get past his accent. But these things change. Immigrants from the subcontinent continue to arrive in America, and lots more people, from inner-city youth to rural adults, are becoming familiar with the histories and accents of South Asians. As for Selvaraj, he still lives in New Haven, still works the same job, still goes out occasionally on Saturday nights by himself. But one thing's changed now. I'm driving car now. I'm I'm safe. <laughs> Is he, did he get a gun at the end? Is he... A car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're born an untouchable in India. I mean, it's not legal anymore. Technically, in the cities, you don't have a caste system. But in the villages, it's still tradition that if you're born to certain families, that determines your place in society. What is a Brahmin? A Brahmin is the highest, highest social class. You, um, you have a very natural way of delivering. And that's hard to teach people that. So don't lose that. <laughs> Um, I, I can't even understand some of the things I'm saying because it, I, I, I mean, it might have been a natural way of delivery, but I think some of the ways that I phrase things I look back on now, and I think that was just such a drawn-out, convoluted... But that's what makes it... It makes it more intimate when you speak as if you were just talking to me in a bar <clears throat> about this story. That's what makes it more intimate than a more formalized or stylized writing. So that's you should enough. keep that. You should keep that in there. Yeah. Elena. Um, did you interview your friend over the phone? Or? <laughs> yes. How can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> but did you choose to do that, or was it a necessity? Uh, this was um, this was a cell phone call before I had any idea whether um, that was bad or good in radio. Um, and the other thing is that for me, his accent isn't a problem. I can understand everything he says, and I'm as I'm realizing with the car, the gun thing, uh, I guess a lot of what he says doesn't sound intelligible. And actually, that's one thing that I wish public radio could do more of, is put people with stronger accents on the air and take that risk so that Americans would learn how to understand. Yeah. A lot of times when people asked him where he worked, he would say, I work at the DOT, which for him is the Department of Transportation, DOT. Oh. But everyone else thought he worked for a temple or a mosque or something. <laughs> I think that's just a matter of the of the phone, though. I mean, I think if uh, yeah, I think if you had that, in, if he was, if he were reported in person, uh, I think he'd lose a lot of that difficulty. That's one of my big regrets. If I could do it again, I'd do that. Do you still have contact with him? Yeah. 
he liked the story. He didn't understand why I was interviewing him first, and then when he heard it, he, he, he liked it. Have you played this for other audiences besides here? Because I know you were saying you weren't necessarily expecting to, but I think that I think it fits also into like a general framework of like social justice that I agree with. So I would actually cool. like to hear more people <laughs> being able to hear like someone say I would actually rather like not have like make those connections. I think you did a good job of that. I just wonder who else has heard this. No, I I can't think of a a venue for this other than like an intimate you know listening room like this i i did it for my blog back when i was just trying to make stories every month just trying to get experience mm -hmm. and uh i i think you're right that it uh it should be heard i just really have no idea where interesting you said when you i don't know if this was a slip of the tongue or subliminal or what it was but you started out by explaining saying this is a piece I want to show you. You didn't say, listen, you want to show us. I thought that was really interesting that you said that. Are you psychoanalyzing me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I teach audio documentaries, so I'm always telling students that you know you need to be able to present, create something that the listeners can see. You know, um, so I just caught that when you said, I want to show you this. So can, can I just get a general sense from the audience of what percentage of what he was saying you could understand? Like, be totally honest, because I need to know. About 75% for me. Yeah, 75. 75. Okay, so that's not as bad as I thought. That. <laughs> no, no worries. Okay. Yeah. Ari, you, Ari had something to say. I was just curious, sort of based, on, based on all the feedback and so on, is this a story that you would think about reworking? Or is it, or what, what, do you, what do you do with that information now? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, this, this person is such an open and honest person and has had something, I think, big and significant happen to him. Uh, if, he can, if he can express that more clearly and if I can use some of the skills I've learned at WNYC and BUR, I would love to do the story again. It's just that I would have to go to New Haven. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you can, sometimes you can frame an actuality in a way that prepares people to understand it. Mm -hmm. So there, there may be places you can do that. For tapes, tapes are good. Yeah. Oh, tapes. Yeah. yeah. Also, I found that Skype gives really good audio quality. It doesn't good quite ones. sound like a telephone line. It's not as good as like in person, but whatever. Did you have a question, Noah? No, I had something. Oh, um, I wondered how much you edited the interview with him. A lot. It was an hour and 30 minutes interview. Wow. Yeah. And, and it turned into how much? Uh, the total piece length was about nine minutes. But as you can tell, a lot of it was me. So his total talking was three to four Is minutes. The, because we got a sense of him as a good storyteller, uh, but it, did it? Is that just through the magic of editing? <laughs> No, he gives details. He was telling me about that story about that I told you about, the five-year-old being kicked out of a house. He told me that on his own. I didn't have to ask. One thing that I like that you did in the end is um, when you make this kind of metaphoric uh, I don't know, flourish is the right word, but where you talk about you know the, the lines in his life and the lines in, in, in India and then the lines of, of, of what happened to him when he got a mug? And, you know, I, I love when 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 that can work. You know, we, I think we always try and kind of shuttle between the, the micro and the macro, and 
and sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes it does, and when it, and when it does, it really, it really works well. I think that was my bow to Ira Glass. I mean, let's yeah. be honest, you know. Yeah, sure. I think we have time for one more question. We have someone in the back who's had his hand up. Yeah, I think Ira did say imitation is the key to find your original voice. <laughs> No, but it, it, there are so many moments of the read that were very, very charming, um, even in subtle writing bits that were so good that you know this. I want you to, want you to maybe think critically about the end. Um, I'm just asking you, I mean, because I know you made this for your blog, and it's, it's just so clever. So, but when you think about making a piece out of it, I mean, what would have happened if he had talked to um, the kids? If he had actually, yeah, gotten to talk to the kids? I don't think they would have understood anything he was trying to... And also, and also um, I don't think they would, if they had understood, I don't think that would have had as big an impact on them as he thought it would have had, which I thought was the story, how hopeful he was for these kids, even after being beat up. But you're my mentor, so I'll talk to you more about it. Thank you very much. Where can we go to hear the rest of it? Um, my blog, talk to me afterwards, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. And now we Thank have you. Jordan Tekle. Well, I'm a student at Brooklyn College. This was, this, this story I did when I was 16, it was about um, <laughs> me being, I legally emancipated myself from my mother at 15. And um, I moved here, well, not here, I moved to New York City to pursue um, radio. I wanted to intern uh, at WBLS, which is a black-owned radio station, um, and I wanted to work, work with Wendy Williams, but also I was having trouble with my mother and stuff. I know she's probably in here, like, spirit-wise, and from California listening, so. But um, here it is, they'll go to it. Yeah. Well, this is me. Jordan Patrick Austin Teckley. Spaz alert, spaz alert, spaz alert. On my own like I always wanted to be. I'm losing my mind. Physically and financially. Bills, 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 bills. I landed in New York City two years ago when I was 15. Imagine a skinny black kid getting off the Greyhound bus. In one hand I had my emancipation papers. And in the other, a suitcase filled with my nicest jeans, my Nikes and my Jordans, and my retainers for my teeth. I thought all I needed was 122% determination, a job, and maybe someone to cut me a deal on the rent. Well, Jordan had $200 in him when he moved in, and I just didn't have the heart to take all of it. That's Stuart Charles Shankman. His friends told him he was insane to rent a room to someone who was 15. But Stuart gave me a chance anyway. Stop way, Mr. Postman. Stuart is a Motown-loving 61-year-old Jew. Mashed potatoes. I'm a 17-year-old black male. Do you like Keisha Cole? I don't know who Keisha Cole is. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, Stuart was born with the dinosaurs. Can I use dirty language? It was, yeah. It was this girl. I wanted to make out with her. She had one of them Jacqueline Kennedy bouffant hairdos that was popular then. You know, Mrs. <laughs> Kennedy. Let me back up for a minute. I didn't move all the way from California to hang out with a 61-year-old guy and his stank stupid cat and all his sexual fantasies. I came here because my relationship with my mother was ruining my life. I live in a zoo. A zoo. When my mother came home from work in a bad mood, it was like a parade of wild animals storming through the door. I have to go to work every day and put on this happy face when I'm not happy. 
This is my mom, the last time I went to see her in California. I got to come home to a house that is not mine. I want room for my pets. I ain't got my bunnies anymore. I had to give them up. I had an orange cat named Pumpkin. I gave him up, too. Did you hear that? People make fun of me because I keep saying I'm going to win it. Here she is, going off about winning the lotto. When I win it, I, you know something, when I win it, I, I have more friends than you can ever know. But I'm going to win it. You'll see, and then you'll know that I'm not crazy. I really don't think my mom is crazy. She's raised two kids as a single parent. She's a college graduate. She holds on a job at the DMV. She took us to Chuck E. Cheese on our birthdays. Bottom line, what you're supposed to do as a mother, my mom did. But her mood swings were crazy. And guess what? I started to get in everybody's face, too. I couldn't control you. You were getting out of control, son. You were cursing me. You were doing things. You weren't listening to me. Okay, she's right. But I felt like nobody was on my side. Not my mom. And sure as heck, not my father, Daddy Haptum. He hasn't been around since I was one. So I petitioned to the Sacramento Family Court for my emancipation. You can petition for emancipation um, if you're 14 years or older. Roberta Katz was the family court mediator for my case. In her county, about 35 minors petition for emancipation every year, but only a handful actually get it. They have to be able to understand what it means to live independently and to be able to pay the kind of bills that are required when you're no longer under your parents' roof. My mom didn't want me to go through with it. It was very, very scary for me. You know, I didn't see how you could make it on your own. But after a trial period where I lived with my mother's friend in New York, my mom agreed to sign the papers, and the judge declared me an emancipated minor. There it was, all in light. Woo! It's my theme song by Prince. Holla! You already know! Hey! Emancipation! Free! To do what I want. Free at 15, credit cards, checking accounts, designer jeans, no rules, partying, being on your own, and being a man. Woo! Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's 4.15 in the morning, and um, I'm, like, so tired right now, but I have to go to work. It's amazing the damn sun is not even up yet. You know what? It's hard to get out of bed when you're a full-time student and you work 25 hours a week. I figured that out quickly. What I'm still trying to figure out is how to stop being such a hothead. About to spaz on my dry cleaning lady because she rates me for money and my clothes better be clean. She know I'm leaving tomorrow and we just cross the street safely. People don't know how to drive. But I'm gonna go in there and be nice and be polite first. How are you? Hey, my beautiful darling, darling, how are you? How are you? Yeah, I hope my clothes are ready. Yeah, let me check. <laughs> I blow up at everybody. My mother, my teachers, <laughs> random security guards, and even my roommate, Stuart. <laughs> wow. Um, that... It, uh, 
it's a great story. I mean, I had a lot of help. Um, well, it was, it is. Um, I, I had a lot of help. Um, Melissa Robbins, who's in here, you know, I think is the best producer in the world. She helped produce the story. It was amazing. And um, I also had Marianne um, McCune, who was the actual editor, and she was a pit bull. Man, I used to hate going to her office because she, would, every time we, we we went to her office, she always cut something. But um, you know, less is more. So the whole thing is like nine minutes long. And what a legal, what an emancipated minor is, is it's when you're under 18 and you want all your rights as an adult. You go before a judge, and um, you can go with your parents or without. I went with my mother because. Um, in the beginning, she wasn't with it, but then she helped me because it was the only way for me to live away from her legally. So um, I went to the judge the first time I was denied. And he said I had to go to New York City and prove that I could be self-sufficient. I went to New York City. I got my job. I went into high school. Um, I went to BLS. They laughed at me and said, you know, there's no way that a 15-year-old can intern at, you know, at this station. You have to be a junior in um, college. So I came back, um, got my braces off, went to the judge and said, look, I got a job, I'm in school, I got a 3.1 I think I had. And I said, emancipate me. And then he asked my mom, he says, is it okay with it? My mom said, yeah, let him go, he'll come right back. So um, I had my money, bought a Greyhound ticket, bus ticket, and was in New York City within two and a half days, like a kid in the candy store. And um, you know, and took two years, but I finally got the internship with uh, BLS and got a chance to work, work with Wendy and now I work with Jasmine from 10 to two. Vicky. Are you still a hothead? <laughs> I am. I am. Um, but I'm, I've gotten a lot better at it. I am. Um, you know, I think just, I've matured a lot. You know, I'm still not an adult. You know, I was lucky to be able to, you know, at 15, you know, have credit cards and be able to, to live on my own and stuff. A lot of, I think a lot of t teenagers would love to do that. But um, I was just lucky. I was fortunate. You know, I really tricked the judge because looking back, I was not ready to be on my own. But I get, you know, I just made it sound real good. You know, slick Rick. You have an incredible amount of insight in your, you know, delivery about who you are mm -hmm. and it and what's going on in the outside world and what's going on inside your head that is a fabulously honest and insightful portrait. So I I was just honest. I mean I remember I remember Melissa telling me, you know, you just be honest. It's the more honest you are, the easier it's gonna be to make this work. And record as much as you can. I mean, I took the recorder to uh, when I got sick in the hospital. I took it, you know, if I was going to McDonald's, I'm taking my recorder with me. I was looking crazy. Everywhere I would go, to, I mean in the bathroom, I need to do I need to be recorded. Everywhere. To work to work with Wendy. I don't know if everybody knows who Wendy Williams is, but she's like the one of the, if not the biggest female radio personality in the number one market. This woman is huge. She has her own TV show coming out, and um, you know for. That's not at all right. We, it, it, they did a test run, but next year it's going national. It's going to be out in every city. And um, I finally got a chance to work with her. I mean, I mean, it took, I used to go up there all the time. They thought they were going to call the police on me because I just kept coming. I said, I need to intern for her. And um, they finally gave me a chance. So do you, how do you think that this experience in public radio, did that help you at all, do you think, in terms of your commercial aspirations? Hell yeah, because it was the first thing, it was the first thing to, 
to accept me. I went to Hot 97, I went to Power 105, I went to Kiss FM, I went to Light FM, I went to every radio station. And little old WNYC was the first station to, little? you know, accept, well not little, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, they, ex they, they accepted me with open arms. They, they were the first radio station to say, you know, hey, you know, we'll give you a chance. Because, you know, they only did phone interviews, but I said, I have to do my interview in person, please. Because I wanted to make an impression. So, you know, I did my interview, and they really, and they, I mean, I, they stood with me, you know, I, through a lot. I was working, I was going to school. My time was very weird for me to be able to meet up with the producers and work on it, but they really stuck with me. It took, it was like a six-month, seven-month time, Melissa? Like that? Yeah, so they really, yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful. And my question for everyone is just about youth production in general. All of these stories are very personal, with me very much involved. And I'm curious if you actually think that that could be a constraint, because I think that as adults, we almost just take it for granted that people will be willing to share extremely personal stories and I'm wondering if then do you think that as you kind of go out into this world and grow as producers, that you might benefit from doing something that's outside of the me aspect and the personal reflection? Can I, can I ask No, I'm actually, I would like to hear Oh, sorry, I thought you asked. Sorry. Cool. Um, if I can answer, if that's cool. Um, my background's in print journalism. I did it at high school. I still do it at college. So and I feel like my next piece is going to be, even though I have a slight personal connection, it's not going to be anywhere near as personal. So I don't, I mean, I definitely feel like I can do both ends, like both being personal, doing the personal essay type thing like I did in this piece, but also do more journalism-y. That's what I want to do in the future. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I've worked with some, a couple like uh, film documentaries and uh, about like undocumented uh, immigrants in Salt Lake City and Utah and everything. And a lot of times, like, um, never including like anything personal, any family members or anything. Like, just everything was like never like very like documentary like style, more uh, like like as you said, journalism, <laughs> journalism is, um, but uh, something along those lines. But yeah. I, I, I like I don't know I like it when it's more upfront like how it is rather than like the personal element like I don't know. But. Do you think that, that that maybe that experience of having to hold very personal information helps you be more empathetic with the people that you're interviewing when you kind of ask them to tell you definitely. and share these stories? Yeah, I, I'm definitely really sensitive with like questions. I always like feel like pretty invasive when I go ask people about their life and everything. And I always like, but usually I find that like, people are willing to tell their story. They want to be heard. Mm. And I mean, when it comes to the, to the stories that I do, I, I, one of my first rules is keep myself out of out of the dang story as much as possible. It's not about me. Uh, and I mean, when it comes to asking those personal, intimate questions, I'm reminded of uh, a Playboy interview with Mike Wallace, maybe 20 years ago, where um, I think a third of the way, hey, you know, I mean, hey, Playboy has. Playboy has great interviews, uh, period. Um, I but I think I, I read it during my, my first undergrad years, and basically, I mean, a third or two thirds away into the into the conversation, uh, Mike Wallace asked the guy, "Well, I mean, have you have you you know asked me all, all the have you asked me the hardest, most difficult questions yet? Probably not, you know, because we, we've only been talking for a while. So, you know, if you if you 
are working on an interview, a conversation that's going to get intense and personal, if you can take the time, then that's, in my opinion, a, a very wise way to do it because it's not going to be your, your third question. It might be your 13th or your 15th or your 30th question. So, uh, I mean, I, I suppose your, your question to, to us doesn't really apply to me because I, I'm very conscious of keeping my butt out of my story because it's not about me. So, I think that was a really good question, and I just realized, thinking about it, that um, people, younger people, don't have access to things outside their close personal sphere. That was my roommate, you know? So I don't know there's a way I could tell that story without saying I remember that night when it happened to him. Uh, is this on? Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. But I, maybe that's a bad thing that um, when we become adults, we forget that the stories around us in our personal lives are the stories that we can tell really well. And when you work for National Public Radio, you call up experts and strangers, and you get you know, tape from uh, people you don't know, but you forget sometimes to tell stories in a more intimate way. Maybe. I mean, it was uh, for me. It's easy because I'm just an honest, open person. And you know, if I'm, you know, I, I've always liked interviews where people push the buttons and ask questions that you know the listener wants to hear. So I've never been afraid to. Even when I interviewed my mom, I asked her, you know, everything. Yeah, I, I, I just wasn't scared. I mean, just I want to know. I'm sure somebody else wants to know too. I, I saw some um, people had hands up for Jordan. Jenna, I saw you. You had your hand up. Do you still want to? Comment on how uh, I, I really enjoyed how you talked to the tapes and interacted with it. The technique worked really well there, and you had the pacing of it just right, you know, cutting in between the tape and your argument. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Oh, so, uh, did you did you start with writing or did you start with interviewing? Um, I started. With, I don't even remember. I think it was. No, no, it was it was recording, it was recording, because I had to go, I had to go back home to Sacramento, anyways, to see about my mom. My mom, I found she had type two diabetes, so I wanted to go and check on my mom. You know, as any child would do, no matter what your relationship with your mom is, your mom's sick, you're gonna go check on your mom. So I went to go check on my mom, and then I recorded a lot of that stuff there. I mean, there was so much more tape. I recorded hours and hours of tape, but we started with exercises, and then um, I had to go to Sacramento, and then uh, I just took the recorder and recorded everything I could. From Sacramento. And um, I don't know. Do you do writing in other parts, uh, other than this, like in your life? Do you? Yeah, I mean, I don't not like poetry or anything like that. But I, I mean, know, but I mean, have you ever written about your, yourself like this, or was that something? Was that a challenge? No, it, that was the first time um, writing like that. I mean, yeah, it was the first time writing like that, by myself like that. Yeah. You had a question. To me, that to me, what you did was absolutely the essence of personal documentary in that you had a personal story but you were telling us about emancipation um, to me that was just a perfect blend of that and um, you know I heard I heard actually heard Ira Glass say one time about that trick about finding getting people to tell you those personal things when you only get a chance for a few moments with them and who the hell are you um, and it works I've even had some students do it where you offer a little bit of your own vulnerability first, you know. I, I know it. You know, like if if they if they've been in a fire in a house, I, you know, I had a friend who, when I lived next door, I had to, you know, console him when they went through the fire at the home. Just to offer a little bit of your own vulnerability, people tend to be a, a little more open about their vulnerability when you do that. So it works. 
Well, I wanted to uh, praise you for uh, one particular moment of peace where you said uh, you introduced your mom, and uh, you said how uh, you said it's a zoo, and then she just comes on with this rant, and uh, my mom. people are kind of uncomfortable in the room laughing because they know it's your mom, and they're sort of laughing. It's awkward, and then you come in and say, um, but, you know, these are these are all her strengths. And she did all this. She, she's <coughs> what she sounds like, you know, and yet what she sounds like was what it was like for you. So I was, um, I just wanted to mostly praise that moment, but just ask you to reflect that on like, what, how did you feel making that moment and also playing it for this group? Well, there's two sides to every story. So I didn't, you know, I can give you my side, but I'm sure if my mom was here, she would say, you know, well, this is how it went down or whatever. So I knew that, you know, my mom was all, all she was always a good person but you know she would have her you know mood swings and bipolar moments and you know i know i have like 10 people running around in my head you know one give me the mic give me the mic let me talk so you know i'm like adhd so i don't know if that comes from my mom or not but yeah i didn't want to make my mom the enemy or the or the bad person in this i just wanted to you know just talk about uh, you know, my life and being emancipated and why I left Sacramento, but I didn't want to make my mom the bad person. So that's what I'm hoping that you got out of that. I didn't want to seem like I'm pointing the finger or pointing down. Was that on your mom actually speaking? Yeah, that's her. That's she, the, she, that's, that's real. That's not acted. It wasn't like, you know, I'm not gonna lie, I thought you were mimicking her. <laughs> that's my mother. That's my mother live in action. I also, I also wanted to compliment you on that what I thought was a really um, great piece of work that where we sort of get this immediate impression of her and okay this is going to be about why you know why his mom is a total crazy person and how he had to get away and then you come at it with well but you know she did everything yeah, she was supposed to do as a parent single mother and, and, and um, I mean I just thought that was a really nice that did something neat to us listening to that mm -hmm. um, totally separate personal note, I think the fact that you did something like that actually indicates that you weren't actually fooling the judge. It indicates a certain level of maturity. Um, that, so I don't, I, I think that, I think sort of this piece demonstrates a lot of the maturity that, that you would want to see in someone who wanted to be emancipated. Um, I, I just wanted a quick note, people talking about putting yourselves in the stories. Um, I just wanted to recommend something to you if you're interested in that. Um, from last year's Third Coast, um, Sean Cole led a session, I think, called The Power of Narcissism. And that's still online at the Third Coast site. And there's some examples there of, of people putting themselves in stories in a variety of ways. Some of them lighthearted, some of them really not lighthearted. So that's a, just a place to get a lot of different ways to do it in case you want to try and think about that. Uh, uh, we have more comments, and we have a few more minutes, okay? So uh, I also would like to encourage you, if you want to ask um, something of the entire group, you can go right ahead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the entire group. First, I just want to say I'm incredibly jealous of you because when I was in college, public radio was barely a blip on my radar, and for you, it's so much more than a blip. Clearly, it's a passion, and that's extraordinary. Um, this is kind of like a job interview question, so it's sort of like gross. <laughs> but, um, what is it that drew you to radio? Why radio? What? That's easy. Why, why were you so jazzed initially? You know, I, at the beginning I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't have the looks or the talent. So I, I scratched that off. Oh please, I'm not. I'm not a look. I'm not a looker. I'm a talker. <laughs> I'm trying to fake it, y'all know. But um, <laughs> dig it. 
No, but um, I used to ride the school bus and listen to like the Doug Banks morning show, and they used to have a ball in the morning, you know, drink champagne and interview all the. I'm serious. They Doug Banks was the, the man, 103.5, the bomb. And um, uh, he had like his whole crew, and they would just, you know, interview all the celebrities and stuff and just have a voice of what's going on in their city. So I was like, well, damn, you know, I, I want to do that. And then when I found out about Wendy, it was a rap. A black woman that could be able to say what she says, get away with it, you know, I want to do that. Or I, or I want to be able to, you know, play, go on a segue into songs that I like. You know, I just, that's, I know, I, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do TV. I don't want to be a doctor. I, it's, I know I want to be on some commercial radio station segue into music. That's just me. It's easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's hella funny. I listen to NPR in the morning. <laughs> um, I mean, for, for me, it started out with uh, I want to invoke uh, Charlie Rose, but that was uh, when I was watching Charlie Rose. That was before I had a damn clue what public radio was. And then my sister, uh, we're talking, and she's like, "Have you have you listened to public radio? Uh, I think you'll like it." Okay, and I discovered Terry Gross for myself, and I, I didn't think in terms of journalism, I mean, I, part of me thinks that what I want to do is like right out on the crack between journalism and something else, but uh, Terry is what did it to me, and, and then, you know, somehow TAL wasn't on my radar then, uh, and so it started, it started with Terry and the, the nuanced, in-depth conversation that, that, that she was able to, to put together, and I'm like, wow, I want to find out how to do that, and if I can pay the bills doing that, I'm doing darn well. Um, now is when I should thank Noah Miller um, for... <laughs> I got into radio because he came to my journalism class, and I applied to Out Loud Radio, and it's been awesome ever since, and now I'm here, and we'll see where it goes. So thanks, Noah. <laughs> With me, I like I lived in Salt Lake City, and I had like two reasons. Like one, like the radio stations we only have like a few, and they always like played like the same songs, like the same like mainstream radio. So I just wanted to go on and just because uh, with the program I'm in, we also do like host a weekly radio station, and then we make radio documentaries. So I wanted to go on and play like underground hip hop, play a lot of like good musicians, like get like more people heard on the radio, good music, uh, more played in Salt Lake City. And also, they also do another program where you do uh, Radioactive, which is a talk show host. We talk about like, political events. And I wanted to like break barriers in the city, like really get people talking. And so I enjoyed the program a lot. That's why I wanted to do it. Um, I don't know. It's a hard question. I, I think I was simplifying a bit, but my parents didn't let me watch The Simpsons and some other TV, sho <laughs> TV shows. But they gave me um, a radio alarm clock. And so I discovered Love Line one night, and <laughs> I think it's been a steady decline from there. <laughs> you mean Dr. Drew and yeah. I used to listen to them. Okay, okay, thank you. Wow. Questions, comments? I saw some hands up. I just was thinking about it's probably it might be an obvious observation about the way you used humor. I know that you could not be funny because that's who you are. But I think it's an incredibly powerful tool to allow people to digest a story that otherwise might call on different emotions. You know, your challenging situation. You know, if you told it uh, straight without all those voices in your head and all that stuff that was going on, 
you know, we might have been sitting here going, geez, that was, you know, and instead, it almost, it ends up feeling like a celebration. Like we do this really fast trip with you, but because you used humor, I think it allows people uh, to move quickly and, and feel all that stuff all at the same time. So don't give that up. Can I just give from an Irish perspective? Standard, <laughs> the, sta the standard is so high. It's so, so high. I know we're all talking about the kind of individual uh, pieces or elements within these uh, packages. The standard is so, so high and so refreshing. It's just a pity. I don't know if uh, National Public Radio has uh, avenues for this stuff to get to air, uh, whatever, but if, if it could be packaged, then it could get to air. Uh, and without being too sanitized, because so a lot of the stuff I hear on, on uh, NPR is so sanitized that it, it loses that connection with the audience. And I think the, the actual young voices and the material of that age group is so refreshing and so well put together. Well, talk to Doug Mitchell at, at National Public Radio. He runs the, the Next Gen Project. He's the one who can make it happen. So that's, is, that, is this kind of stuff going on there? Uh, I haven't, I, I mean, National airs uh, intern edition uh, during every intern semester, but I, I suspect that if, if you want, you know, somebody who works at 635 Massachusetts Avenue to, to, to do it, call, call Doug or go to the Next Gen page, you know, so. Yeah, that, that leads to, thank you, because that leads to my standard speech, and that is that here they are, okay, and we're the old guard, and we have to figure out a way to let them on the radio, because a lot of them are get on the radio because they are affiliated with youth groups, and that youth group has an affiliation that gets them on NPR. But once they step out on their own, they're having the same amount of trouble every independent producer, um, with the exception of they're young. So it's, you know, it's time for us, the old guards, to just be letting go and, and just doing whatever we can to get their voices, and voices like theirs heard. Okay, well, I can hear the four, vo the four over this side. Uh -huh. You know, going to public radio and mm -hmm. how to get in there, and there is absolutely no question that Jordan will be in the number one market. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> WBLS. <laughs> if, if you were any hungrier, I'd be scared. I'd be scared. <laughs> so, any last comments, questions? They're here. Um, Thank you so much. I think much. most of them are here rookies. till t the evening and tomorrow. So, please talk to them. Give them Thank your you. card. Bye. And